power of God should be, and the presence of God and the miracles of God should be normal in the house of God. You see, prayer, true prayer reveals our dependence on God. True prayer activates the power of God. And God wants his people who need help to get the help that they need. And that help always comes in the form of prayer. There should be power in God's house. The power of God to change people. The power of God to heal people. The power of God to set people free. The power of God to take authority. The power of God to cast out wicked spirits. The power of God to help people break off every single chain. Every single thing that keeps them stuck. Every single addiction. Every single stronghold that needs to be pulled down. Every single ounce of fear, guilt, shame, worry, anxiety should be pulled down by the power of God through prayer in God's house anytime. Anytime. And Jesus is saying, you're replacing something that needs to be done in the house of God because the place of prayer should be the place of action. That's the place where people come to me and said, I need you. I need you now. I need help now. And he's really upset. It's called righteous indignation. He didn't sin during all of this. And it's a different picture of Jesus. Oh, how I wish I had a table to throw on some of you right now. It's not a picture of Jesus you see often with a whip driving out people. Everyone says, oh, he's so meek and mild. Well, meek is strength under control. And he was fully in control, even in his anger. Driving out the merchants, knocking over tables. You see, they were keeping people from coming to the temple. Now watch this. We are called temples of the Holy Spirit. Our identity in Christ, if we've accepted Christ, is that we are a house of prayer. Not the church. You're the church. It's not just a building. We are called temples of the Holy Spirit. We're to be houses of prayer. Are you known as that person of prayer? I get a lot of people, I don't know, I'm afraid to pray, I'm not sure. Let me tell you, if you can, if you can open up your mouth, you can pray. If you can say help, you can pray. If you can cry, you can pray. If you can say, Lord, I need you, you can pray. If you can read the scriptures, you can pray. And your prayers are just as powerful as anybody else's. And if you've been a Christian one day, one hour, one minute, your prayers are as powerful as someone walking 50 years with the Lord. Because God's no respecter of persons. And let me ask you today. If Jesus came to visit your temple and house of prayer, would he come with a whip and turn over tables? Or would he come and smell the aroma of your prayers that have come up as a memorial before him? See, one day a guy named Cornelius first Gentile ever saved, always prayed, always gave, and an angel appeared to him and said, your prayers and your giving to the poor have come up as a memorial before God. Your prayers go up. That's how important prayers are. They go from your mouth into a sweet aroma and they come before the presence of God and God cherishes your prayers. He stores them in bowls. I mean, how awesome is that? Their sin was keeping people from God. And let me, let me say this. God doesn't like it when we keep people away from him.
people walk into the church. Some people say, you don't look right, you don't dress right, you don't smell right, you don't talk right. My worst fear is that someone may walk in church and then get turned away. That should never, ever happen. I remember working in a church, we probably spent about 40 grand in a big mega church to come and tell us who our target group was. You know, who, who we're going to reach as a church after spending a month with the staff, a big staff, like 153 people on staff. Spending thousands of dollars, they came to this conclusion that our target audience was late 20s, early 30s, married couples with two children. They went around to the staff and said, everyone agree, that's our target audience. And it came to me, and they said, Bill, do you agree? I said, well, what about the people that need Jesus? What about the people dying and going to hell? What about the homeless person? What about the person in jail? What about the person struggling with drugs and alcohol? Because those are my type of people. Those are the people that need Jesus. Those are the people I want to target, and those are the people I want to come into the house of God. Shut up, Bill. This is a place to worship God. This is a place to find hope. And no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you believe, no matter what you don't believe, this is a safe place for you to find a relationship with Jesus Christ, find the abundant life in Christ, find eternal life, find hope, because there's always hope in Jesus Christ. This is, this is a hospital, okay, for the broken and the lost, as well as a place for the saints to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. The church should do both well. And I'm so grateful to be a part of COS that does both well. Aren't you? See, I am one of those people. And I'm proud and grateful to be one of those people. And you know what? You are too. Listen, you may be the first and last Christian that a non-believer will ever have contact with. Do you know that? And you know what? For a person that doesn't know the gospel and doesn't know truth... They may not listen to a pastor. They may not believe a single word I say or preach out of this book. But you know what? They're looking at you. And you may be the best Bible they will ever read. So I want to ask you today, what type of translation are you? Are you a good translation? Are you a message translation? All grace, not a lot of truth. Let me ask you this. You will never lock eyes with another person that Jesus Christ hasn't died for. I always find it amazing how ugly our sins look when other people commit them. Someone say, ouch. And let me ask you, are you a bridge barrier or a bridge builder? Are you a stumbling block or a stepping stone? Listen, this was the second time Jesus had to clear out the temple if you remember, when he started his ministry, he cleared out the temple. And it's not a new thing. This was also in the Old Testament, temples had to be cleared out as well. Let me just say this about the religious leaders. And let me say this about you today. You don't need a little religion. You need a lot of Jesus. I need a lot of Jesus. And I want to say, don't just make Jesus king for a day. Make him king every day. Let Jesus take your sin. Let him forgive you of that sin. 
Let him become your sin. Die for that sin. Defeat that sin so that you can overcome sin. You can overcome the grave. You can overcome death. And you can have a resurrection Sunday that will celebrate next Sunday like never before. Let Jesus do that. I'm excited about Easter. I know it's Palm Sunday, but I'm excited about Easter. I can't wait for next Sunday to say, he is risen, but therefore I'm forgiven. So that's what we should, he's risen, therefore I'm forgiven. When was the last time you realized how greatly you have been forgiven? Mm. So here's the sequence of events that take place all week leading up to the cross, okay? You may want to take a break. We're going to be here until 8 tonight as I get through this. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We don't have enough time. I think next year at Encounter, we're going to spend three months talking about Holy Week. Because there's so, there's so much in here. There's the first procession, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the clearing of the temple, Jesus getting questioned. There's the Last Supper. What happened at the Last Supper? What did Jesus tell him? He prepared his disciples. He washed their feet. He, filled them, he showed them the full extent of his love. Then there's the Garden of Gethsemane moment. There's this suffering getting him, Jesus getting arrested, the second procession, him carrying his cross all the way leading up to Good Friday. What happened on Good Friday? What happened on the cross? We could spend 8, 10, 12, 20 weeks just on the cross. Jesus getting crucified, the two thieves, Jesus' final words, the seven last statements of Jesus. There's so much to talk about. We don't have time to do it. But again, I want to remind you to look at Holy Week, Palm Sunday and Holy Week from a kingdom perspective. That he came to be with them, to have fellowship with them, to save them from their sins so they can be forgiven and live forever, all because he loved them. And because he loves you. And he still loves you. And if you're here today for the first time and you're hearing the gospel for the first time, I want you to know today that God is not mad at you, he's mad about you. He loves you so much, and he loves you so much that God demonstrated his love for you in this. He died for you. And if it was you, he would do it all over again, because that's how much he loves you. He loves you so much. And yet the people that he loved turned on him. Everyone scatters. His followers scatter. Peter denies him three times. And you would think that during Holy Week, three years of ministry, someone would step up to the plate. You would think coming into Jerusalem, there would be thousands of conversions and thousands of baptisms. But none of that happened. None of that happened at all. You would think there'd be one person that gets it. One person that would acknowledge why Jesus came, what he's about to do, what was happening in their lives. You would think that there would be at least one person that realizes their need for a savior. And yet it's hard to find that person. But there is a person. And to me, he's one of the heroes of Holy Week. And it comes in an unlikely character. And that person comes in the form of a thief. A thief nailed with another thief next to Jesus. Now, Jesus is in the middle, and they put two thieves that can see Jesus 
on each side. And if you have your Bibles, go to Luke 23, and let's pick up this story. Verse 32. It'll be up on the screens. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Well, they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. So here's Jesus getting mocked in his identity. Here's Jesus demonstrating great grace, saying, Father, forgive them, the ones that are actually killing me. He didn't wait for them to say they were sorry. Forgive them. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews, mocking him again. One of the criminals who hung there, here it is, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus. He rebukes, one thief rebukes another thief, and then that thief turns to Jesus and says this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all he said. That's all he did. That's all he said. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today, everyone say today, you will be with me in paradise. 